love sushi, I love Japan. My social life has hit the fan. All I have is anime, so I guess there's just one thing to say. Guru Gamesh, my life's a mess. My figure collection is racking up debt. My wife has left, my house is gone. Time to get my butt to Sakura Con. Guru Gamesh. Hello and welcome to the Garugamesh podcast. I am not your host with the most. I'm Gabriel. I'm here with Jay or whatever the hell his lines are. Anyway, uh, Jay, how are you doing today? If you're feeling strange and philosophical, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters! I'm feeling great today, Gabe. Today we're doing an episode on my favorite anime, the real Ghostbusters. I didn't know this was animated in Japan. I'm so excited. I'm very excited to discuss the real Ghostbusters, which is specifically about busting ghosts and nothing else. Exactly. I broke into Bill Murray's house this morning, which didn't help because he doesn't provide any of the voices in the cartoons. Oh, that's a shame. But I bet, I bet you got some nice things out of his house, you know, maybe a ghost or two. Maybe something frightful. Yeah, yeah, he had this weird premium copy of Ghost in the Shell from 1995. So I also did research on that. I've, I've, I've never heard of that film before. Could you please tell me, sir? It's one... It, well, you see, um, Ghost in the Shell was a 1995 animated feature that some people think is a movie. I've never seen a movie in my life. <laughs> well, as we established in the first episode of the Grugamesh podcast, there's like seven or so anime, and this is one of the seven. So, so we're getting up there. All right, um, facade aside, I'm not sure how long we can keep this bit up. Uh, welcome to the Grugamesh podcast. I am the host of the most mostly Jay. Uh, to my left or right or digital cyberspace. See, see, I did it again. Uh-huh. I linked to this. I linked the sources in the vast, uh, infinite net. With me is a fellow cyber hacker Gabriel, and Hello, we are focusing on uh, Mamoru Oshii and Masamune Shiro's uh, psychedelic, uh, socio-political action big booby sci-fi anime Ghost in the Shell. This has been a long time coming, and. My mind is a bit mush because I've been engrossed in this dense, complex, but at the same time, silly, campy world. And I'm not sure what my reality is, which, if anything, is very appropriate. I think so. It definitely reflects the kind of messages that both the film and the manga to an extent are definitely trying to put across, especially like considering we're having this discussion through, through cyberspace. So... Mm. To me, Jay isn't real right now, and I am not real to Jay. We, we are both figments of the technology. Nice. Do you have wires plugged into all of your orifices? I was told that was what you do. I have wires plugged into two of my orifices, because <laughs> um, I have my headphones on, so I guess, look, it, yeah. Look, Matt, look, look, Matt, it's the nostrils that really get you into the hive mind. Oh, yes, absolutely. Just, like, straight up there, right, right the whole way down. So we've got a lot to cover on this episode because most retrospective, well, well, here's the thing. I shouldn't say most retrospectives because as we've established, we're, we're the first anime podcast. We're setting a precedent. I imagine the podcasts that come after us will likely uh, imitate whatever we do, meaning that they're either going to be the best podcasts ever. I mean, they won't because this one exists or they'll be the worst podcasts ever because this one also exists. I'd like to think of it as 
they will literally worship the ground that we talk on. But Gabe, what is the point of physical ground when the unlimited digital uh, plane of non-existence allows us to spread our uh, nanogenes through the ghosts of society and we will recreate ourselves in the image of our mind's eye? Haha, <laughs> that's dense, that's dense and wacky, Microsoft, wacky gag manga stuff. Okay, look, um, we're gonna get into the episode soon, but flip a dime and you could find a conversation like that somewhere in the Ghost of the Shell franchise, because as much as oh, this absolutely. blew my tiny baby mind as a teenager watching this, a lot of it seems like it's kind of just the creators pulling smart lingo they heard out of a hat and just sticking a bunch of, like, Megatech, globalization, colonial, industrial revolution. Like just, just putting buzzwords together. That's how you make Ghost in the Shell dialogue, and a lot of long pauses and still shots. Yes, I mean, I think those the long pauses and the still shots are definitely true of the cinematic adaptations, like both of Oshie's films. But the Really dense philosophical conversations that seem to come out of absolutely nowhere, and it seems like it's just the author just throwing stuff in because he thought it was really interesting is very indicative of Shiro's manga. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of Shiro's manga, I'm glad you mentioned that because I want to focus on everything that surrounds the original story of the puppet master and Matoko Kusanagi. So in this episode, we will not only be covering the very famous 1995 film, directed by Mamoru Oshii, released in 1995, but we'll also be covering the 1988 manga series, written and illustrated by Masumune Shiro, um, the, the, the remake that some people saw, I guess, and among other things, it's this is a franchise within a franchise. It's weird to think that this one story has multiple incarnations attached to it. So, just to start us off, where and when did you first experience Ghost in the Shell? Because I'm going to go first of this. I experienced Ghost in the Shell in the worst way possible, but also the best way possible. Right. Because I watched this on an iPod Touch on a bright Californian (laughs) uh, road trip where I could barely see what was going on on a tiny screen about the size of my thumbnail. That's the, that's cinema. That is how you watch cinema. <laughs> like screw these big fucking cineplexes and home theaters. Now that's that's the true cinematic experience right there. I can't remember if I watched it in portrait mode or not. <laughs> but so, but so yeah. yeah, what what were your experiences then? How how did you here's the, find the film? Here's the here's the thing. I was. My anime history is the fact that I've always been a science fiction fan first, back in the day, before I was strictly anime fan. So other than, say, your Dragon Balls and such, I didn't really have much context for the worldwide web of Japanimation, but I thought, wow, this booby lady sci-fi <laughs> anime looks looks pretty neat. I'll put this on my tiny screen for my trip to California, and even watching it on a very bright day in a loud coach where I could barely hear what was going on, it still blew my tiny child mind because I firmly believe that this film is experienced when you're a teenager who thinks they're smart, but in reality is a dumb mess of hormones and mush brain. yeah. Like, (laughs) from my experiences of it, I, I can't remember my specific first experience watching it. 
but I definitely watched it for the first time as a teenager. Um, it was one of the first Blu-rays that I bought, and I actually bought the 2.0 version, and that that was how I first experienced Ghost in the Shell was in around 2008. It was re-released with a few key scenes um, changed to CGI animation and like the color grading was changed and it was redubbed with some characters, blah, 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 blah. And yeah, I watched it a few times throughout being a teenager. And as you say, being a teenager thought I was the most intelligent person on the planet and just did not fucking understand the film whatsoever, like at all. Um, and I think that's part of what kept me coming back to it as a teen was the fact that I didn't really get it. But hey, there, there was booby ladies and heads blowing up and cool robots and stuff, and I was like, yeah, this is great. Like we're gonna we're gonna make a lot of jokes about like the use of nudity, the use of violence, the use of very uh, dense political diatribes within the dialogue. But I think. We we make fun because we love because we start yeah. probably started off saying oh that's that that's the dumb stuff when when are they gonna blow people's butts off but now we're just like no 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 shut up this is the part where they talk about the colonialism of neo Japanese communism and we're 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 a hundred percent there for the the diatribes that where they use all the lingo we're, we're I like to sort of phrase it as Ghost in the Shell shaped my taste in media where I strive for everything I really like to have this nice blend of contemplative and cool. And I think via that philosophy, Ghost in the Shell absolutely nails its objective with a home run swing. I think you're right. It's like as much as it's as much as it's easy and it's enjoyable to make fun of those kind of aspects of the film, they are very much the thing that gives it a lot of its feeling and a lot of its atmosphere. It's like I've hadn't seen Ghost and Shell for a few years before I watched it again for this episode. And I always had this image in my brain of Ghost in the Shell being this very sort of like slow, meditative, philosophical work with these really quick, intense bursts of action. And watching it again, it's all of that. It really is. But there's also so much more going on that's just contained within this perfect little 80-minute package that's just completely trimmed of all fat, and it just blows through scene after scene after scene after scene of just incredibleness. For a film that has two to three sequences of pure music and no dialogue, you would assume that it would be minimum two hours, but it's 84 minutes. It's less, it's sort of barely feature length. It does not waste your time despite the so-called density. And that's a kind of an impressive miracle. But before we dive into our nostalgia of the film, there first came a, a little comic book by the name of Mobile Armored Riot Police, illustrated by a, a young up-and-comer Masamune Shiro in the pages of Young Jump magazine in 1988 to around about 1991. This was a publication that was not annual. It was only about once every three, three months. Yeah, because Shiro been, was just getting yeah, his... Been quarterly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just getting his uh, foot in the door with this, because I know he'd done his other science fiction uh, series, Appleseed, by this point. Yes. So, but 
to go a little bit into Shiro's career because I think it's quite interesting in its own way. Because it Shiro comes into the manga industry in a very different way to a lot of other mangaka. So mm-hmm. especially and this is very much also true in the 80s, it's especially true today, that a lot of professional mangaka will come into the industry working under a working as an assistant under a pre-existing mangaka who's serializing an ongoing series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And then they'll learn the tricks of the trade, and then hopefully they'll get their own series published in a weekly or monthly magazine. Shiro doesn't doesn't do this. Shiro is an art teacher, originally, and publishes publishes his manga on the side. He starts publishing uh, Black Magic M66 in a Daojin magazine. Which itself is a very sort of pulpy story of a rogue cyborg going nuts and sort of like a crack team having to take yes, it down. Yes, exactly. And it's 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 an amateur work. This isn't this isn't professional publication. This is something that he's mm. doing off his own back. And then it's a I can't remember what company. I think it may have been Kodansha. Possibly, I might be wrong on that. That doesn't nail exact- it down, considering they are basically the DC comics of manga. They own yeah, exactly. So there's an executive at a manga company sees Black Magic when he's leafing through Dodge and stuff, and he's like, "Oh, this is interesting." So Black Magic gets republished as a single volume, which is also a bit unusual, especially at the time. Yeah, so it so it it goes it doesn't even run into a publication; it goes straight to what uh, Americans would yes. call a trade paperback, just a just a single yeah. so volume of comics. So starts his career. Professional career with a publication of his amateur work, and then he goes straight into working on Appleseed, which also went straight to trade paperback, which is again very different mm. to how much of the industry operates. And that's actually really interesting, considering if I if I could just like we're gonna get in the actual Ghost in the Shell manga in a second, but the number one thing that I sort of took away because for context, uh, dear listeners, I only read this dense. A mother fudging comic book for the first time this past month and this is not in line with we think of ghost in the shell the movie as quintessentially 90s anime though we'll mm. get to that in a second but ghost in the shell the manga is quintessentially part of the lineage of 80s cyberpunk you see i've also realized that maybe on this retrospective podcast we should probably explain things instead of just name dropping endlessly because <laughs> you know pe- people have social lives and such no, no, no. I've Not never, us. This is the only time I've ever spoken to another person in my life. <laughs> As previously established, we're probably just computer programs that are designed to yell about Japanese cartoons and comic books into the internet. That's what I feel like. But. <laughs> so anyway, with uh, the manga Akira starting in 1982, there becomes this slow undercurrent that starts happening with sort of uh, dystopia science fiction adjacent manga that stops publishing like stuff like battle angel elita uh like black magic as you see at apple seed it's not a uh, manga but a uh, bubblegum crisis but stuff that it's not quite cyberpunk because like the the idea of the genre has barely crossed the ocean from america at this point but no, it's, it's, it's very kind much of getting taking on the aesthetic in a lot of ways like it's i remember there's a story about william gibson going to see Blade Runner. Um, Blade Runner came out in 82, mm-hmm. and Gibson published Neuromancer, which is seen as the like foundational work of cyberpunk in, I believe, 1984. 
And yes. he's been trying to work on this book for ages and ages. And he goes to see Blade Runner and he sits down and watches it and goes, this is it. This this is exactly what my novel looks like. Mm. And so a lot of cyberpunk, especially Japanese cyberpunk throughout the 80s, is more taking on the aesthetic of Blade Runner than it is taking on the themes that are being used yes. in works such as Neuromancer. 100 percent and i think ghost in the shell is right there because aside from like blade runner comparisons are inevitable to any piece of cyberpunk uh, fiction yes. but other than the fact that it's a pseudo detective story and deals with philosophical diatribes there are very little links so let's get into the manga itself like i said gabe i read this for the first time this past month yeah what did you think of it oh boy I, I oh want to say I, I, I want to say first up I I, I enjoyed myself. It's yeah. uh I own the Kondansha hardback edition. It's very Lush. nice. It's it's wonderful to hold in your hands. It comes with the original Japanese sound effects. It's uh, unflipped. Uh, why that's special, I'll touch on. And it's it's a good time. That being said, for context, I read four other comic books. In the span it took me to finish this <laughs> manga, because gone to my head, I would rather recite the end of Evangelion's plot in Spanish backwards whilst balancing on a horse than try and dissect some of this shit, because this is like throwing a textbook against a pornography mag and a gun magazine. Basically, yeah, it's like one, one, it's almost a criticism that I have of the Ghost in the Shell manga is that Oshi, not, not Oshi, Shiro, sorry, every once in a while, it seems like he, he likes to do digressions. He gets very into his digressions. Oh, he, I noticed. Yeah, so, like something very interesting, something that he thinks very interesting will come up in the story and he will almost stop the plot in order to inject what feels like a miniature philosophical essay discussing whatever concept of philosophy, sociology, politics, technology, mm. networking that he's thinking about at that time. And a lot of it's like quite dense, like really. It's quite high concept stuff. Yeah, for anyone who has not read the manga, which I imagine is quite a few people considering it's it's definitely the most cult part of Ghost in the Shell at this point, uh, when looking at the pages of this manga, there will be sort of editor's notes under the borders of the panels where Shiro has kind of just gone on a lot of uh, explanation diatribes and said either stuff about his world building or stuff about... Uh, what's realistic and why he drew things in certain ways. It's I kind of liken it to watching a director's commentary on a movie you're watching for the first time. Yes, and I think it's I think it's great. I think it's a really interesting thing to bring into comics, and mm. it's especially it's indicative of his sort of like Daojin roots because that's not really necessarily a professional thing to do. It gives no. you a feeling of Shiro almost having a second career as a mangaka, almost as if he's just like fallen into this professional world and he's just like, oh, well, this is, this is giving me money. Yeah, sure. Let's just publish it. And I draw this stuff for fun anyway. I mean, I'm personally very mixed on the sort of commentary track, as I put it, because sometimes it'll be fascinating and other times it will basically be like someone's kind of waxing lyrical to put as many yeah. big words as he possibly knows at the bottom of a page, which is weird because half the time it's about him 
sort of airing his grievances about, say, the Japanese justice system. But other times it's kind of like he's going sort of like full on Stan Lee, where he's narrating <laughs> the, the terrifying tales of a new amazing adventure. Oh, you're right. It's like... Uh, Carry on. Diatribes. No, please continue. I was going to say, it's interesting because you're right about that. It's it's while I think it's very interesting, it's very good. It there's certain points where it almost feels like it gets in the way of the plot. Where mm. you're going, you're reading this usually, you know, quite fast paced thriller, like political thriller almost, and it feels like the plot grinds to a halt. So you can spend like five minutes dissecting right exactly what the fuck is Shiro talking about here because this doesn't make any sense. Mm. This is like actually quite dense biotechnology almost. I, I need to like decipher this. And you're trying to figure out how it fits into the story. But I, I do want to give it some praise though, because I, like I said, I did enjoy myself. Yes. And I think one of the biggest enjoyments I got out of this is that professional or not, Masamune Shiro is a great action mangaka. His command of like sequential storytelling and mix of paneling styles and techniques is amazing. Like whenever it breaks into, aside from just, you can clearly tell this was done three months apart because the luscious detail of technology, like Shira seems like the opposite of every other artist that exists where usually artists love drawing characters and nature, but usually struggle drawing machinery. He seems the opposite. He seems to absolutely love drawing, uh, drawing very complex and intricate firearms and tanks and machinery, but kind of skimps a bit when it comes to character faces, because there are a lot of them are very sort of cartoony and almost comic strippy in the way that it's very even during serious scenes, there's minimal facial lines. It's one of those things that kind of sets him apart from a lot of other mangakas as well. It's that again, he's doing this entirely off of some back actually like all like he doesn't use assistance when he's drawing this stuff everything is drawn by him directly and yeah which is more rare than people because as much as like manga is seen as more of an auteur form than comic books because usually american and european comic books deal with you have a penciler you have an inker you have a colorist you have a writer but the secret of mangaka is usually Sure, they're their own writer and artist, but usually, especially if you're quite big, you've got like at least one or two or even three assistants kind of helping you out with like backgrounds or layouts or like ink filling and such. But again, as much as it feels like we've been ragging on the manga for the last few minutes, that's really not the case. Like, I think it's really good. It's, it's, I think it's a great work. I think it's out of Shiro's manga that I've read, I would say it's definitely his strongest. It's a great read. It's very exciting. You get really caught up in it. The art is really unique and it's very it's very iconic of the 1980s anime style. Like it really it feel, if I was to sort it. of like gun to my head, say what it reminds me of. It feels like a fusion of Katsuhiro Tomo of Akira in regards to the science fiction landscapes and action and dialogue scenes, but in regards to because it's it's it tries to be quite funny. Yeah, it's occasionally. There's, there's a lot of Gagmanga DNA in it. It's like there was times where I was rereading it for this and I was really reminded of stuff from like Doctor Slump. And I was just like, this is strange. Like it's cool, but it, it's a very strange experience to be reading these really deep intellectual discourses on you know the nature of the But then there'll be like a kitty face yeah. and there'll be like 
sort of like slapstick. I, I, the name I was going to draw out of my hat was Rumiko Takahashi. Yes, a lot of one. the sort of physical comedy and sort of like the sexiness of Matoko, especially, reminds me of Ranma. You'd probably be right about that because Rumiko Takahashi's huge during the 80s. It's like the two, mm. two of the biggest sort of like gag style mangas at the time would have been the works of Rumiko Takahashi. So Urusei Yatsura, as you say, Ranma. Um, my Sonny Koku and also Akira Toriyama's Dr. Slump, as we've already said. Like, yes. they're huge gag stories, and you can really feel their DNA sort of creeping into Ghost in the Shell. Is that especially when, like, a lot of chapters will have, like, say, an intense bloody gunfight, will have uh, very stern men talking about the nature of political asylum or tactical espionage between security departments? And so on, and then it will just end like on like a on like a, a, a dumb like slap gag, or it'll end on like a comedic note with the Fuchikomas, uh, the the spider tank robots making like a little tech yeah. pun, and it's it's a fun little graphic novel. I mean, it's not little. This this bitch is like four hundred pages, but it's an interesting read. And in my opinion, this represents a very raw unrefined sort of first swing at a truly detailed world and i really respect its dedication to its world building it doesn't feel like anything else i've i've read but that's due to how its flaws kind of mix in with its um with its favors and we'll get to the mamoru oshi link in a second because a lot of the groundwork that was laid for what ghost in the shell would mean section 9 being like the last good cop district with a bunch of governmental corruption and sections fighting fighting each other for sort of control and assets and espionage the idea of intimate human moments between a lot of techno babble and just the sort of quiet bureaucracy of police work reminds me a lot of pat labor yes and i think it's kind of perfect that uh, for context, Pat Labor is a mecha series from the 1980s which focuses on grounded police work with occasional comedic bits and commentary on the bureaucracy of Japan's government at times, which Mamoru Oshii, director of Ghost in the Shell, made his name doing and was a big franchise during the 80s. I think as much as we didn't get it, Pat Labor was actually very profitable oh, yeah. during Pat this Labor time. Was but- very successful. Um, the initial OVA then spawned two films three films, actually, later on. Um, it spawned a full TV series, and it's still there's still Pat Labor work being produced today. But to bring it like back to the Yoshi connection specifically, is that his involvement with Pat Labor is pretty much the entire reason that he ended up working on Ghost in the Shell. Oh, 100%, because they wanted another success that was like, pseudo-adjacent to Ghost yes. in the Shell, and they were like, hey, you know what to do with the cats and the <laughs> robots and the cool ladies with the guns? You got this, kid! So it, from what I've researched for this, it was after Oshi had finished off making Pat Labor 2, and he didn't really know what to do. So he, he didn't know what project to do. So he went to Bandai, and Bandai effectively told him, go make whatever you want. So he went and made Talking Head, um, which I haven't seen, but is apparently Oshii's strangest film, if you'd believe that. Um, and it's in live action, and it's apparently absolutely bad shit. So he makes Talking Head, and then he comes back to Bandai, and Bandai look at it, like look at him and go, 
Yeah, um, maybe you should work on this, Mamori. It's a manga called Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> maybe you should adopt that. It's very similar to Pat Labor. And so he starts working on Ghost in the Shell from there. He's, he's given Ghost in the Shell to work on. I think that's interesting, but specifically because it was seen as a very similar work to Pat Labor, but Ghost in the Shell ends up turning out very different to Pat Labor in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I, I noticed when reading the original manga that of all the 12 chapters of Ghost in the Shell, Oshi really only cherry picks from like three or four of them to sort of make the plot of the movie. Like the rest of the chapters are sort of standalone adventures yeah. that haven't really been adapted anywhere else. They're just their own works involving various uh, escapades in the mega city of yeah. Tokyo. It's like, I would say he only really takes the plot from maybe three or four chapters, but he, I noticed lots of points where he was cherry picking like specific scenes of like there'll be a scene yes. that's like two pages long in the manga that he uses in the film in a completely different context, and character designs get moved around between different characters and different parts of the plot. And I think this is partly because Oshi, in speaking to Masumi Shiro. Shiro literally gave him permission to basically do what he wanted with the plot. Like, Shiro just turned around and said, yeah, go rewrite it however you want. And you, Which is an asset, because if you would have tried to adapt this directly as a film, you would have failed utterly. There is no way you could string all of these, because a lot of sort of plot points, well, not plot points, but a lot of details of world are kind of just left out for the sake of just letting those juicy morsels hang in the air for more intrigue about this mysterious cyber world. But they don't really go anywhere. These are it's It was supposed to be just a little fun and possibly thoughtful cyber adventure every three months, making that into a film with a serialized narrative that was like bookended would not be possible. No, it would work maybe as an OVA series, but not something on the scale of like a full television show without complete reworking. Mm. So just before we move to, move to the film, is there any sort of like more key manga moments or manga details you want to touch on? Because for me, characterization is really interesting, especially considering everyone's a goofy version of themselves. Yes. But manga Motoko, <laughs> Vava, Voom, my Manga Motoko is very sexualized and very it, like such a contrast to the film in a lot of ways she's the basis of her personality is still very similar she's incredibly competent at her job she's very straightforward does everything as it should be and but also has this anti-authoritarian streak in her but mm. She's so much more goofy. She's so much more fun-loving and portrayed so much more sexual as well. Like She goes from Ellen Ripley to a Scooby-Doo character on a soddy yes. dime. And it it is interesting because Motoko in the film is almost completely desexualized, but in the manga, mm. her sexuality is a very strong part of the story almost. Like Characters frequently make reference to her as a woman. And it's strange. It, it shows you the difference in what kind of stories Shiro and Oshi were trying to tell. 
Bashir was trying to tell this episodic, fun, goofy cop adventure with a bit of serial with some serious aspects to it and discussing some philosophy and some politics. And Oshi is creating well, guess that's what we're gonna talk about, isn't it? Well, after I talk about how angry that I am that they censored my sexy lesbian <laughs> booty bouncing, I can't believe those social justice cocks wizarded oh. me out of my glorious See, two pages of Masamune Shiro, like, cyborg ejaculation goodness. Will our senses never end? See, I have a different edition to you. I have an older edition that I got when I was like 16. That is, it is flipped. It's in paperback, but it includes the, what can only be described as a cybernetic lesbian orgy on a ship. Um, this is the dumbest fucking nerd vision you could possibly have. Yeah, I'm going to describe much. this as eloquently as I can. Essentially, it's the Major having intimate relations with two of her gal pals, for lack of a better term, whilst they exposit the benefits of cyberized like, sex organs and nerve endings, and it just it goes on. It It just goes on for like two to three full pages, and then the plot just continues. Yeah, it's about two pages long, and it's just kind of there, but it's it's such a weird thing, because... I wonder why they didn't adapt this for the Scarlett Johansson movie. It would have mm. gotten a lot more butts than seats. <laughs> Fuck me. <laughs> but it's... This is, a, this is probably a good point to bring up the fact that Shiro's... We've I've talked a I'm bit. Sure, I'm sure he's a, he's got a very wholesome, nice career. He's just a nice art teacher making nice things, right? Uh, not anymore. He <laughs> was an art teacher, and then he quit his art teacher to have a career in drawing porn. Like he, Shiro, Shiro's manga career is very much his secondary career. His primary career is literally drawing porn and naked ladies. Etc. Like he has a line of art books that are literally called Galgrace. It's, it's very strange. It's always one thing about like Shiro that I'm just like, that's huh, interesting. The dude who created Ghost this in the man Shell, has Apple the Seed. lives we wish we all had. Maybe not, but I mean, if you want to live your life like that, I'll go go for it. Have a great I mean, time. Look, he's good at what he does. As long as he's, he's happy, very good at what he does. That's fine. That's that's what's important here. <laughs> and I think that sums up uh, Ghost in the Shell, the manga. But moving on to the movie, which you and I have probably seen between us like twenty-five times minimum. I don't know how many times I've seen it because I definitely watched it quite often as a teenager. But okay, like uh, as I was saying earlier, like rewatching it. For this episode, it was the first time I've seen it in years, like quite a few years. This would be like my ninth or tenth watch, uh, I believe. Oh, my experience of rewatching Ghost in the Shell was very interesting because I could remember it all very clearly. Like from scene to scene, I could remember what was happening, what was going on, blah, blah, blah. blah. But the way in which it all fits together so beautifully just really hit me this time. Well, like, I it's it's funny you mention that because I also have several sequences of this film burned into my frontal lobe and they will be with me until the day I'm on my deathbed where I'll just I'll just I'm I'm stealing this joke from like seven different podcasts 
but I'll be on my deathbed and I'll say, I'll, I'll call you on our hologram phone and say, Gabriel, my oldest podcast companion, I have one more thing to say to you. You remember that scene when Matoko ripped the fucking spider tank and then she was all like naked and shit? That shit was the bomb! A hundred and twenty-year-old Jay, everyone. <laughs> Man will never change. But but like my 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 comedic bits aside, it is that mix of I can respect this as a as as an adult who understands subtlety, nuance, and symbolism. But I can also tap into my older, more immature side who just wanted to see titties and gunfights. And both sides of my brain are equally satiated. Yes. It's like, there's so much to talk about this, or to talk about in this film, that I'm not even really sure where to begin. I think a good place is maybe discussing its production and how that sort of came about. Mm. So we've already sure. mentioned Oshi, like how Oshi got brought on as director, and Oshi's a figure who's very much associated with the film. But there's a lot of other things in the production that are really interesting. Oh, absolutely. Like, you've got kind of a lot of heavy hitters here. Like, coming back to a point I said earlier, where Ghost in the Shell, through our cultural memory, is seen as like a quintessential 90s anime. Yeah. But that's really ironic, because if you look back at it, it doesn't look like anything else that aired at the time. There's no big expressive eyes with multiple, like, light sources in them. There's no thick black outlines or exaggerated musculature or neon colors or exaggerated like street fashion it's a very naturalistic looking film that completely goes against the grain of even the OVA movement mm. and specifically it was Hiroyuki Okiura who was the character designer for this film and to this day no one's really done characters like his characters in this film. They're just completely... Because you can still tell it's anime because of the stylized yes, face, sure. faces, but it's stylized in a way that could be possibly made in America, that could be just science fiction in general as opposed to specifically anime. And I feel like that's very intentional in a lot of ways the film's still very rooted with a lot of japanese sensibilities and japanese aesthetic of anime oh it's a very japanese and movie and oshi has consistently said that he doesn't make movies for a global audience but <laughs> ghost in the shell was whilst it's definitely um, comes from the Japanese side, it was also very much manufactured as a Western phenomenon. Oh yeah, between like Island Records and uh, Manga Entertainment, which we know as a anime distribution service now, but they used to be like the only place you could get anime from from a while, and they put up the cash to get this stuff in like art house cinemas, get it in like blockbusters and get it into the cult scene. Yeah. It's like manga specifically funded about 30% of the film's budget. And that, that was makes so much yeah. sense when you consider their entire catalogue for 
this 90s second wave of Japanimation, using that term unironically for once, being, you know, the the the, the Akira dub, being like uh, Cyber City Oedo, a lot of sort of very gritty, yeah. Western-adjacent, bloody booby anime. Yeah, it's like manga entertainment really built their brand around these very adult, often very hyper-violent and hyper-sexual works in the late 80s and early 90s. You've got the works that you've already mentioned. You've already got also got stuff like uh, Wicked City, Legend of the Overfiend, mm. Ninja Scroll. And 100%. They're, obviously, they're putting money into Ghost in the Shell in order to get a hold of the like international distribution rights, blah, 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 but because they're expecting a certain kind of work out of it, and they're expecting the kind of work that's going to sell to yeah, their fans. Which is why if you look have. at all the trailers, all the stuff that's highlighted are like the action scenes and the chase scenes and the nudity scenes. It doesn't put the contemplative scene where you see a basset hound yes. on a bridge or <laughs> the scene where it's just a bunch of still shots of Hong Kong. It knows where to put the money shots, for lack of a better term. And it's it's very interesting that that's happened as well because it really exemplifies that anime has never really been this thing of like, whoa, this thing's just come over out of Japan and it's just exploded out of absolutely nowhere. No, this was a very intentional thing. Yeah. Oh, it's always been calculated. Like, there's this myth of... There's this sort of myth of fandom where people just discover it on their own, but the truth is, a lot of the times... People are banking on certain niches of people discovering this Ooh, yeah. if they just put the right plates in front of them. Like, even going back to the original manga for a hot second, they managed to get the rights to Dark Horse to publish this in sort of like the the 90s comic boom of it's like image comics and such. And they managed to get the rights to Dark Horse so that this cult, pulpy, sci-fi manga managed to have like a small cult following by the time that the VHS hit Blockbuster. And what's really interesting about that as well is that the film was much more successful in American markets than it was in Japanese markets. Oh, it did not make its money back on Japanese no. box office alone. It needed uh, English-speaking support. From what I've read, it only ran in Japan for about four weeks. And oh, that's, that's insane. Yeah, it's nothing. But obviously it had a you know, more like in terms of cinema more broadly, it had a moderately successful run around the art house circuit in the US. And for an anime mm. film doing that, it was um, it was like just a runaway hit. Like it was huge. It was it was on Siskel and Ebert, which was unthinkable for something that wasn't made by Hayao Miyazaki. Exactly. It's just unprecedented, really. And you know, Siskel and Ebert discussed anime films before, but Ghost in the Shell again is one of those ones that just comes like seemingly comes out of nowhere uh, yeah and the fact that they liked it is a miracle <laughs> they like big booba explosion anime i mean god so, bless them Ghost, so gusten show is very successful outside of japan and a lot of that is predicated on its association with this you know hyper violent almost video nasty equivalent of works that manga entertainment are putting out but you sit down you watch the film yeah, 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 and yeah. That, that stuff's all there but you've also got this other side of it that's very philosophical very slow very art house very contemplative 
which is fascinating because if we're actually getting into the film itself, the first opening five minutes are a perfect snapshot of everything you're going to get in this film. You have someone standing, sitting atop a rooftop in a trench coat and dark sunglasses, murmuring away into the ghost. You have a secret political meeting between uh, foreign affairs ministers. You have someone's head exploding into a room. You have the literal birth of a cyborg accompanied by the god himself, Kenji Kawai's wonderful score of the same name. And it's kind of everything. If, to a 17-year-old who knows nothing about what anime is, you could not have asked for a better hook to get 17-year-old Jay interested in this film. No, absolutely not. And I would say similarly for myself. And oh, can I just take a moment to talk about our credit sequence because there's so, so much going on there. It's so beautiful. It's... Just you, the whole sequence is literally watching the construction of this artificial body, of the cyborg body. And you go through the whole process from beginning to end. And as you say, over the top of it is playing this beautiful score of just ritual chanting that is actual, literal ancient Japanese. Yes. It's, it it's, it's the, mind blowing. Yeah. It's, I believe the language is called Yamato. And the like the lyrics are alluding to like a god descending from heaven and descending from the sun and it's like supposed to be a mythological allusion to amaterasu the japanese sun god and it's just and it just sounds so beautiful there's so many there's so much going on in that opening sequence alone that you wonder you, you sit there and you wonder it's like what the fuck else does this film have to give me because that was amazing and there's so much in this like for 80 minutes for what 84 minutes it feels very brief it feels very quick it's very punchy the 84 minutes of this film say more than some like 50 episode anime series do yes absolutely do you want tell you what do you want to just kind of list off key moments favorite interactions favorite just scenes of the movie because i feel this is this is get the splash zone ready because this is where the gush comes in my most of my favorite scenes in the film are those scenes of just very slow paced nothing happening but there's so much going on at the same time it's like the opening the opening credit sequence um with makoto's body being built the sequence in the middle of the film that sort of like acts as the turning point where Motorboard Major is on a boat going through the rivers of... I can't even remember the name of the city now. You know, technological Hong Kong. Hong Kong, Japanime. And it... There's just this beautiful track playing over the top of it. It's stunning. And you just get so many wonderful, beautiful views of this city. And it's so full of life. And it's so full of beauty but in beauty in disrepair and beauty in things breaking and falling apart and you also get glimpses of different versions of the major body that are just existing throughout this throughout this world i want to talk about this because this is the most important i firmly believe as much as it may be the intro sequence or the puppet masters speaking for the first time or the spider tank battle 
this scene where the major is just touring around uh, this Hong Kongian cityscape is the most important scene in the movie because you mentioned that she sees herself around the city. That is not metaphorical. There's a literally other women with her exact body. And I feel that's what like some people miss about this narrative is the fact that Ghost in the Shell is about embracing the possibilities of collectivism. And throughout this entire film, Matoko is sort of searching for identity, waxing lyrical about the merits of being an individual, but she literally has a default yes. skin. She is just a standard issue model. Her face is anyone can have it. She is not an individual. That's exactly it. And that's why that scene is so integral to the rest of the movie. Do you mind if we pause for a quick second? Sure, by all means. In the near future, corporate networks reach out to the stars and electrons and light flow throughout the universe. The advance of computerization, however, has not yet wiped out nations and ethnic groups. is Project 2501. And I am a life form that was born in a sea of information. Ghost in the Shell. Released theatrically worldwide, fall 1995. Well, now that we have that perfectly smooth transition that definitely didn't interrupt the flow of conversation in the slightest, um... I mean, something that, like, I, I have a bunch of bullet points listed down here that I'm happy to just fire off quickly. Um, uh, the scene where Chief Aramaki meets the foreign minister for the first time, and it's very clear that, like, Section 9 doesn't like being a part of the government, but it's just trying to do good. There's the uh, garbage can, uh, there's the garbage truck guys sort of getting into the shootout and then being revealed that that one dude who's just trying to see his daughter never had any memories to begin with, which is heartbreaking. There's the cool sort of waterscape fight with Matoko being cloaked and the dude using high-velocity rounds in the submachine gun. There's the spider tank battle, which, uh, the, I mean, they're not Fuchikomas and they're not Tachikomas because they're, they're not quite the sort of more spherical design, but like, uh, the mecha god himself, Macross creator Shoji Kawamori, does the initial designs for uh, the mechanicals in this film, and it's burned into the retinas of 
hundreds of thousands of weebs who watch this on VHS, Laserdisc, DVD, or even Blu-ray to this day. And it's just, the spider tank fight is so good because it actually calls back to the glasses fuck using the high velocity rounds in his SMG. And the fact that it just shows like 30 seconds of Matoko going into her rifle and changing the insides of it. And for years I wondered, well, what's this for? But it's clear that she's getting her rifle ready for higher caliber ammunition. Like the 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 gunfight is one of the best in anime to just how it's choreographed, how it's paced, the fact that the chain gun like shoots up the tree of life just before Matoka merges to become a new being of the Puppet Master, which actually brings me to a perfect transition. The Puppet Master story is in the manga, but it is so much better communicated in this work than it is in Shiro's original manga, considering he kind of just drops a bunch of very pretty trippy imagery, they make a cyber baby, and then they just sod off. And this, it makes sense thematically, it resonates, and I want to give a shout out to Thomas Halperin Weiner, who is the English voice of the Puppet Master, and he has the perfect sort of cyber god omnipotence of a worldly voice that will always make me watch this in English, despite the fact that it is very clearly a subpar dub from 1995. You're talking about redefining my identity. I want to guarantee that I can still be myself. There isn't one. Why would you wish to? All things change in a dynamic environment. Your effort to remain what you are is what limits you. Yeah, I can't believe Section 6 keeps cyber-hacking our podcast. They're clearly trying to suppress the truth that we discovered what anime is. I guess we'll have to merge into one consciousness so that we can spread the word of anime for the vast and infinite net. We're just slowly disseminating ourselves and our children, our technological (laughs) children, out into the vast wilderness of the internet. The net is indeed vast. Look, man, you try and come up with podcast-relevant adjacent bits between recording fuck-ups. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do that. I am too foolish. Oh, and this is why I am the host of the mostest. The host of the most, most, whatever the most. I am. Well, the host of the most, mostly. Mostly. Most of the time. Mostly. That, uh, we, we, we were speaking about the dub, and I... I acknowledge its its many flaws, yes. but I it it's such a comfy feeling watching this in English. I, I do it's, love the dub because it gives me that big nostalgic feel. You know, it's like it's one of those dubs that I will watch now, and it's not like I can't watch Japanese at all. But I'll watch it and I'll be like, ah, yeah. this this brings back memories. I've heard this track so many times in my life that it just oh, of course, feeds something in you, like. I now realize that it's very clear that manga put more than a few naughty words in just to keep with their agenda. <laughs> like, there's 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 three fucks, there's like seven shits, where clearly they probably wouldn't be in the original, even though, like, the manga's no stranger to harsh, harsh language, but it's very clear that they wanted to stay on brand, because for those unaware, manga entertainment would often make, would often make dubs with very brass language for the sake of appealing to teenage boys of expendable income. I'm gonna, gonna be very forthright with this. Yeah, they they, they would play their dubs to their audiences effectively, mm. and their audience was 
horny teenage boys in their late teens and early 20s. So I'm very fond of this translation, even if I acknowledge it's, it is it is very campy, though it, it's kind of set the groundwork for what would be the future of the Ghost in the Shell dub, which we, for anyone curious, standalone complex and innocence will have their day, but we're already, already coming up on an hour, so we've got to get this show on the road. Uh, I think the ending's perfect. And I have a have a little quote by the main man himself, Mr. Ma- Amaru Oshi, on his whole philosophy behind the film's end. It reads, Hollywood films about virtual reality always end with a return to the real world. However, because those real worlds exist inside film, they themselves are lies. Reality is a questionable thing. I didn't want to do a movie where the characters return to reality. The reality that we experience is an illusion inside the heart of each individual. That's really beautiful, actually. That that definitely sums up the philosophy that I think he's trying to get at with the film. And something that you mentioned to me before the show, actually, was about how that's almost kind of happened in real life, in that the ending has come true in Motoko, well... Motoko Puppet Master, whatever their new identity is, goes out and it's like the net is wide and vast and goes out to spread themselves throughout the net and spread their children throughout the net. And that's almost what's happened. Like Ghost in the Shell is very much like how we were talking about on the last episode about how Serial Experiments Lean has almost become an anime meme. It seems like Ghost in the Shell has almost had something very similar happen to it. Its DNA has sort of gone beyond the anime landscape. And I want to kind of end the episode on that point. But before then, I want to touch on a few more points before we wrap that up with the whole sort of closing retrospective on this particular era of Ghost in the Shell. And the ending represents a very, like, Ghost in the Shell is a very Japanese movie. And I think because it didn't do well in Japan, a lot of people kind of don't realize that its idea of the collective being possibly a force for good as well technology is a very Japanese mindset, considering a lot of American cyberpunk usually have endings where characters, like, either before tragedies due to technology or reject technology and such. But Japan is kind of offering a, another solution where the ideas of technology allowing us to ostensibly become, if not gods, higher beings, is portrayed as sort of ambiguously positive, and it's interesting to see another version of the technological singularity kind of be portrayed other than everything's just going to be Chinatown dystopia with neon lights. But speaking of that, a, a, a certain little film of 2017 exists that that ha- happens to bear the <laughs> same name as, as, as this beloved animated classic. Uh, don't, don't suppose you know anything about um, Ghost in the Shell 2017? <laughs> Right, well, so let me give you my thesis statement on Ghost in the Shell 2017 as a film. It's probably going to be the exact same as mine, but please go ahead. It's fine. Like, it's it's fine. It's not outright awful. It's not particularly great. Stop this madman! His his words are just too much to take! it's It's a film. Like that's all I have to say on it. It's like it's very, <laughs> it's, it's very, film. it's very flawed. Ghost in the Shell twenty seventeen is very flawed. It has a lot of issues with it, but overall, it's RoboCop. It's not Ghost in the Shell. It's a RoboCop movie with Scarlett Johansson. 
Yeah, it's basically Robocop. And to be honest, I think that it does some good jobs at capturing certain aspects of the original film, different aspects of the franchise, but... I feel like it would have worked so much better if the if the association with Ghost in the Shell had been dropped, and then it could have just been another big budget sci fi film that exists. Like I don't want to spend too much on this because this horse is very firmly beaten into the ground. So far, it's probably could be used by the Shell Corporation, but it's it's a very pretty looking movie. It has good acting in it, but ultimately. It tries to replicate Blade Runner too much as opposed to its source material, and the ending is the most Western American individualism you could possibly imagine, the whole puppet master fusion being utterly rejected for the sake of, I am myself and that's all I need, which kind of misses the whole goddamn point. And I'm not even going to touch the accidental colonialism bullshit because we do not have the time. (laughs) Oh god. No, we, we, we're not going to discuss that. My Again, my takeaway on that film is it's fine. Like I wouldn't particularly recommend watching it, but I also wouldn't recommend against watching it. It's- you heard everyone. That's Gabe's uh, uh, winning words of the definitive 5 out of 10 experience. Basically, yeah. It's, it's nothing special. That's all I have to say on that. There's there's nothing more to talk about with Ghost in the Shell. It's fine. No, Ghost in the Shell 1995 on the other hand. I I feel that we could spend at least another hour minimum wrapping off this frame by frame by frame, but we're coming up on our time limit currently, so I'm going to end with sort of two major questions. And the first is, we talked about this in our last episode when we discussed serial experiments laying at length, where we kind of talked about cyberpunk. Now, Ghost in the Shell is considered a cyberpunk classic by many, but an issue kind of comes up where cyberpunk is at times a a meaningless name, where if you try hard enough, anything can be cyberpunk. Star Wars can be cyberpunk. Cowboy Bebop can be cyberpunk. Paw Patrol can be cyberpunk. It just, it's so vague. It's one of those terms, I think, that has almost become subsumed into the culture that it was trying to criticize. And as a part of that, it's been stripped of a lot of its meaning. But it's one of it's what it's one of those terms like postmodernism that you know what it means. Doesn't mean anything in that and means everything yes, at the same exactly. time. You know exactly what it means when you're talking about it, but when you actually get down to the nitty gritty and try and define it, it's very difficult to do so. Yeah, because even half the works that people try and consider cyberpunk usually fall on either they're way more cyber than they are punk, or they're way more punk than they are cyber. Like, just listing off a few examples, for instance, Ghost in the Shell, it's, it's way more cyber than it is punk. Like, we're literally dealing with riot cops. Like, you know... That's they work for the authority. Yeah. Akira is way more anti-establishment, but it was originally penned in 1982 and it doesn't really have any ideas about cyberization. Like Lane fits cyberpunk, but in more sort of like a subculture manner. Even but once again Blade Runner noir cops. So it's just really difficult. It's a cool name that is just dumb and meaningless <laughs> a lot of the time. More or less. And given the release of Cyberpunk 2077, I do have to mention it at some point if we're discussing Cyberpunk. It of course. It feels like 
and this like this isn't a commentary on the game at all, but it feels like it's just become a term that's applied to things for looking it's, a certain it, way it, and having a certain aesthetic. It's because neo-futurism doesn't sell cool glasses yes. and wave vaporwave vinyls. Yeah, you've pretty much hit the nail on the head, actually. Where cyberpunk has become is a term that's used to push products and sell products. Yeah. But does it actually bear any weight on the media that it's ascribed to? Well, where does the newborn go now? The net is vast and infinite. I did it again. I brought it back. Well done. <laughs> so, any closing thoughts on Ghost in the Shell? Because in my mind, it's sort of it. it it's weirdly come full circle where Ghost in the Shell has achieved the objective of its movie. The DNA of this film and manga have been replicated and passed on in other art forms and mediums, and it's not merely to do with adaptations. Like, from The Matrix to Minority Report, Ghost in the Shell's influence has circulated throughout the vast and infinite net and has become sort of a collective anime memory, thus making it immortal. I would say that, I mean... There's so many things we could talk about with this film. Like you said, we could go on for another hour, another two hours, just dissecting this film and talking about every little piece of beauty that exists in it. Makoto has nipples, but not a vagina. What's up with that? (laughs) (laughs) My my 15-minute thesis statement on the the sexual organs of a fictional robot lady. (laughs) But honestly, what I would say about it is that if you're like me and haven't seen Ghost in the Shell in quite a few years, go back and watch it again. If you've seen it recently, go back and watch it again. Because chances are you're going to find something new. You're going to find something interesting. You're going to get a new perspective on it. And you're going to learn something. I think that's kind of the beauty of it. It's 84 minutes that are infinitely rewatchable. I'm thinking of a joke. Right. Look, when the Patreon reaches $4,000, we'll do a real Ghostbusters episode. Yeah, alright. <laughs> this one's fun. And that's all we have time for. Anyway, this has been the Grugamesh Podcast, the only one place for anime discussion on the internet. Don't question that. I have been the host of The Most Mostly, Jay. And I'm Gabe. Thank you for coming. It's been a pleasure. Remember to rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you you get your podcasts. And please remember, I love sushi, I love Japan, but I love you more for staying a fang. See you around, guys. Too late to give you back My receipt is gone And I'm starting to look back at everything that's going wrong Know how I used to long to hold you in my hands Such a shame it took six weeks shipping directly from Japan Not gonna lie, you were kawaii But now your paint job's chipped away Your shining gloss once put my family in strife For what I owe to you, I swear I could die All this 
his body pillows I left hanging dry Oh darling, we're a mess Listening to Garuga Mess